Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with cognitive scientist Maya Shunker. First, though, I wanted to encourage you to check out the revamped website at booksonpod.com. You can now sort through past shows by episode number, author's last name, book title, or even by subject. For instance, select the psychology or science and medicine categories for episode number 100 with Lisa Feldman Barrett on seven and a half lessons about the brain. This is Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of seven and a half lessons about the brain. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. We're doing something a bit different today. Normally, the show is all about speaking with authors about their books, but there's a lot of interesting people out there who don't necessarily have a book to promote. That's why occasionally I'm going to deviate with a series that I'm calling No Book Required. It's my chance to chat with people who have interesting stories and or cool things to talk about. And we're starting the No Books Required series out with Dr. Maya Shunker. She is a cognitive scientist, former Obama White House advisor, and the creator, host, and executive producer for an excellent new podcast called A Slight Change of Plans. Maya, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for having me, Trey. My pleasure, Maya. So you've obviously accomplished so much in your life already, and you are in the middle of still accomplishing a whole lot. So why did you decide to start up this podcast, A Slight Change of Plans? Well, first of all, thanks so much for saying that. Um, I I started this podcast because in 2020, I was feeling really overwhelmed by the amount of change that was happening around us. Um, I think so many people were feeling so overwhelmed by the rapid change around them. And um, what I realized from the perspective of psychology and human behavior is that while the specifics of what 2020 threw our way might have been unprecedented, our human ability to navigate change is absolutely not. In many ways, our minds are built for change. And I know this from, you know, my years as a cognitive scientist studying how it is that our minds work. And so I thought to myself, okay, given that we do have this inherent ability to respond to change well and to be resilient in the face of change, what if we were to find people out there who have been through extraordinary changes in their lives um, and then mine their stories for insights, right? Like learn valuable things about how it is that we could think about change differently in our own lives. And so with that idea in mind, uh, came up with a slight change of plans. And it has been an absolute joy and such a learning experience for me to get to interview guests across the across the board, right, in terms of life experiences. So um, Hillary Clinton, Casey Musgraves talking about her insights after an LSD trip and how that informed her country music writing. Um, Tiffany Haddish on navigating the foster care system as a child and discovering that she had this incredible superpower as a kid, which was to make people laugh. And then Tommy Caldwell, who um, had a near-death experience that allowed him to tap into a mind state that he had never experienced before that ended up propelling him to become the greatest big wall climber in the world. So these conversations have been, um, they just completely exceeded my own expectations in terms of what I thought I could learn about change. And I'm really hoping that listeners have the, ex- the same experience. 
Well, Casey and Tommy's stories haven't come out just yet, although by the time this podcast comes out, the Tommy episode will be available. I was blown away by Tiffany's story as somebody who has been entertained by her over the years as a stand-up and somebody who's now starring in movies. That Mm -hmm. was just crazy to hear about. Of course, you gain this greater appreciation for change and the importance of change and how can it, it can affect a person's life from you yourself having to go through some pretty significant changes as well. And it really started with you having an expertise, a certain level of genius as a child in the world of music, and then have that abruptly taken away. Would you mind explaining to my listeners what exactly happened to you? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I was a young kid, when I was six years old, um, my mom went up to her attic and brought down my grandmother's violin that my grandmother had played in India. And when my mom immigrated here, she made sure that that violin was one of the things she brought overseas with her. And I picked it up as a six-year-old, and I was enraptured. I mean, I was just absolutely captivated by this instrument. And my mom tells me to this day, you know, she never had to tell me to practice. Um, You know, I would rush home from school and, and pick up the instrument. I can't say I was that way about a lot of other things. Like, I wasn't rushing to do my homework, right? But I was rushing to play the violin. And... Um, when I was nine years old, I auditioned for the Juilliard School of Music in New York and was very fortunately accepted. And that just, I mean, then I just got on the speed train, right? This was my singular focus each and every day. I dreamed of being a concert violinist. When I was 13, um, Itzhak Perlman, who is, you know, potentially one of, I would say, is the greatest uh, violinist of our time, uh, asked me to be his private violin student. And I was just off to the races, right? Like I was having the time of my life. I thought for sure this was going to be my career. And then like you noted, Trey, uh, in one moment, everything changed for me. So I was 15. I was, I woke up early, didn't warm up as a, you know, impatient kid <laughs> sometimes forgets to do. And um, I overstretched my finger on just one note. And uh, doctors told me after I, after that injury and because of all the tendons that I had torn in my hand that I would never be able to play the violin again. And so in that moment, I just, I realized, well, I realized so many things um, that I don't think you naturally always think about as a kid. Like I was asking myself these questions, like, who am I? What am I without the violin? Like I hadn't realized how much this instrument had defined me and who I was. And so I was, you know, I was absolutely devastated and I really had to, to, put the pieces back together in my life and try to figure out whether there was something else that I could be as passionate about. A single movement of your finger tore tendons that literally left you incapable of playing violin ever again. I mean, that had to have been one of the worst moments of your life, I'm assuming. I mean, did you consider trying another instrument out as a way to whet the appetite that had been built up since the violin had been introduced to you so many years prior? That's such a wonderful question. I've never been asked that that question, Trey. Um, I didn't explore another instrument because I knew my hand was in really bad shape. I had to get surgeries done on it. Um, I had a lot of scar tissue build up. But I was the impatient teenager that refused to accept her injury in the beginning. So I would take, you know, you know, Advil and all like I was just doing everything I could to pretend that this injury had not happened to me right continuing to play continuing to try to perform and then one day basically the doctors were like kid you just gotta you gotta come to terms with this this is not going to be your career and at that point um, I realized okay I think I just need to find something that doesn't 
require a tremendous amount of agility in my hands. Um, but it's funny when I was when I was interviewing Tommy Caldwell, who's such a joy of a person. Um, I was joking with him that I was pretty sheepish about doing the interview with him because, uh, you know, when doctors told me I couldn't play the violin and that my finger was, you know, in a really bad condition. I did listen to them in the end and I decided, you know, I need to find something else. And I feel like when Tommy literally chopped off one of his fingers in a wood chopping accident in his home and doctors told him that he could never climb again, he was like, screw you guys. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. And then he becomes the greatest big wall climber in the world with only nine fingers. So I was telling him, I was like, dude, I feel like you would have been the guy to play the violin with four fingers and become a virtuoso. And, you know, I kind of just didn't step up. I got to admit it didn't didn't really uh, didn't really rise to the occasion. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Now you did experience that epiphanous moment with your mother bringing your grandmother's violin down from the attic. Did you experience a a similar epiphanous moment that got you into neuroscience? Yeah, I did actually, and funnily enough, it involved the basement. Uh, so I guess I should be—I should always be occupying the top floor or the bottom floor of every house uh, the next time I need to have a career shift. But basically, it was the summer before college. As I mentioned to you, I was completely despondent. Trey, right? Probably not the most fun person to be around. Um, I was helping my parents clean their basement, and I stumbled upon uh, a course book that my sister had used in in one of her college classes, and it was all about how the mind works, and how it is as humans that we develop language. And I just remember being absolutely blown away by this book. And the reason is that I had always taken for granted my ability to speak and comprehend language. And all of a sudden, it's like I'm pulling the curtain back, and I'm learning about just how sophisticated all this cognitive machinery is that allows us to even have this ability in the first place. And so that really got my mind thinking like, wow, if this is what's behind language, you know, what's behind our ability to engage in really complex decision making or really complex mathematics. I mean, I can't do complex mathematics, but my dad's a theoretical physicist, so he can. Um, or like what's involved in, you know, falling in love or these other incredible emotions that we can have as humans. And in that moment, I just remember thinking, I feel like I'm in awe of the human mind and I want to spend the rest of my life studying this incredible um, this incredible entity that exists within each of us. So we have two examples from your life of change, uh, change necessitated in one case by an injury and in another case by you being intrigued enough by something to want to pursue it further. And sometimes change is something that we have a little bit more control over mm. than other times. Do you think you learned more or grew more as a person with the time where you didn't have any control over it versus the time where you discover a book that leads to what turns into your career as an adult? Yeah, another fantastic question. Um, I think I probably learned more about myself with the unexpected change um, just because you can often go through periods of your life not in deep reflection mode, right? It's it's very easy, especially as a kid, right? To just wake up every day and be like, I'm playing the violin. This is the thing that I do. And then suddenly when you lose something that's so valuable to you, it leads you to have to ask all these existential questions about, um, you know, what it is that you care about, what, you, what it is you want to contribute while you're on this earth, you know, uh, all sorts of questions. But what's so interesting to me about 
having gone through this podcast is that I went into the podcast thinking unexpected change is very, very different from change that we will in our lives, right? Expected change. Like like you listen, you read that book and you get really inspired by it and you realize, okay, that's what I want to do. But what I learned from a slight change of plans is that maybe my mental model was wrong. And I learned this in a very uh, acute way when I was um, interviewing a woman named Elna Baker. So Elna's goal from the time that she was a little kid was to become thin, okay? Her entire life, she thought, I can live my dream life if I can just lose the weight. And she did it. She did lose the weight. She lost 110 pounds in five months. And for a while, she felt like she was living her dream life until suddenly she realized that she had become a worse person. She was losing parts of herself that she had really valued. So for example, she felt like she wasn't as nice to people. Kind of ironically, she was far more self-conscious than she was before she had lost um, all the weight. She uh, felt like she wasn't as bold and as fierce and she didn't stand up for the things that she believed in and that she had become more superficial. And what that taught me is that any kind of change, will, willed or unwilled, doesn't happen in a vacuum. It can have all sorts of unexpected spillover effects into other parts of our lives that we simply can't predict at the outset of that change, right? And so what I learned from her story is that I would now give the same advice to someone who is going through an expected or unexpected or a willed or unwilled change, which is to approach change with a profound amount of humility. And the reason I say that is that we have to keep an open mind about all the ways in which that change can affect other parts of our lives, right? It's not like when you tweak one element of your life, every other part of you stays the same. I think this is like a cognitive bias we all have, right? We imagine a future world where we just change that one thing that's going to make our lives so much better, but everything else stays exactly the same. And that's just not how life works. And on the flip side, you know, I, I interviewed a man named Scott. Um, he's, a, he's a cancer researcher. He's 32 years old. He's a self-proclaimed health nut, so he's been doing everything you can imagine under the sun, Trey, to try to optimize his life. He's an intermittent faster. Uh, he does high-intensity interval training. He pours turmeric on all of his food. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm Indian, so I love turmeric, but you shouldn't pour turmeric on food, right? There's a particular way, a graceful way in which you use it. Um, he's vegan, you know, so he had been doing everything. If it was out there in a science textbook, this guy was doing it. And then suddenly, last year in 2020, he finds out that he has a stage four cancer diagnosis. And it results in him having to get one of his legs amputated. He's had six rounds of chemotherapy. He actually had to move to Texas, uh, MD Anderson, to do uh, really intense inpatient chemo. Um, and he's had multiple surgeries since, including removing a vertebra from, from his spine. And so this guy's worst nightmare happens, right? I mean, the thing he cares about more than anything in this world is preserving his body. It's why he's been doing all of this intense, you know, disciplined um, life stuff up until this point. And his worst nightmare happens. And then amazingly, he's telling me six months into his treatment, I'm, you know, I'm sitting out here having a cup of coffee on my patio and I'm realizing I think I'm just as happy as I was before this. And um, he's like, I've surprised myself because... You know, the lows may be lower, but certainly the good things in life are just as good. You know, turns out 
I don't need my other leg to enjoy so many parts of life, like an amazing conversation uh, with a friend of mine or a delicious meal or the sound of a beautiful piece of music. And he said, I feel like I become a better person as a result of this uh, you know, terrible diagnosis. And if I had known how I would respond psychologically to this event, I may never have been as afraid of it in the first place. That is incredible. And I think that epitomizes the name of the podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, although that's said very tongue-in-cheek with his story. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally right. And again, like folks are teaching me just the many contours of change and the very diverse set of ways in which humans can respond to um, adversity and to, you know, what they perceive will be a good thing. And then it just turns out to not be exactly what they thought. I'd like to ask you a little bit about failure, because I think failure is in that category of change that you're obviously not aiming for. Nobody wants to fail. But failure Mm -hmm. is so important for our evolution as people, for helping us to become a better version of ourselves. As a matter of fact, I would suggest one of the big things that separates the haves from have-nots in this world is those who can take failure, learn the necessary lessons, but have a short enough memory to move on while still applying those lessons in life. Have you encountered in the conversations that you've had for a slight change of plans just yet, somebody who has made a significant positive change in the face of failure? Yeah, actually, I was speaking with a scientist named Katie Milkman. She's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And we were talking about this exact question. Um, it's it's the it's episode four of the podcast. So what we've done is we've done a lot of interview episodes, and then we sprinkle in conversations with renowned scientists so we can talk about the science of change. So Katie Milkman's one example. I also talked with Adam Grant about the science of changing minds. And um, what we talked about were there, there's at least two psychological insights that I think would be helpful for your listeners to know about that can help us through these moments where, like you said, we do fail. And it is really important for us to be able to pick ourselves um, back up and recommit to something else um, or try that same thing again. So the first is um, this concept called identity foreclosure. And it basically refers to the fact that we as humans can become very fixed in an identity um, sometimes early on in life, sometimes this persists through you know your middle age. And um, what can happen is that we're so attached to that identity that we close ourselves off to having other identities in this lifetime. And that can be really problematic because it means that we don't go on these wonderful explorations of all the other types of you know person we can be, right? Um, and what I learned, you know, at age 15 was I had to think of my identity as more malleable than just as being a violinist because I was given no other choice. And I do believe that cultivating that mindset has made me far more resilient in the face of failure ever since because I've been very thoughtful about what it is that I attach my identity to, right? So rather than it being discrete passions or hobbies or, or things, right? Like the violin or, um, you know, something else that I pick up. I try to attach my identity to the, the, the skills that I enjoy, the skill process, uh, the skill building process, you know, um, and the things that make pursuits fun. So, okay, you know, I, Maya, am the type of person who loves seeing progress, right? So if my inputs can match to outputs, that's the sort of thing that I enjoy. And that's the sort of thing you can find in a lot of pursuits, right? Such that even when you do lose the violin overnight, there are other things you can take on in life. Like right now, 
um, I'm learning Mandarin, right? And Mandarin is one of those uh, languages where the harder you work, the better you get. Um, and so it's not the violin, but it's still closely attached to my sense of self and identity because it's one of those traits that I enjoy about pursuing something new. Um, so that's the first one, which is identity foreclosure. And it's it's it can be really helpful for us to... Um, again, imagine our identity through lots of different lenses and to be really open-minded about the forms it can take. The other is a concept known as the fresh start effect. And it basically means that when we engage in big life changes, like we move to a new home or we get married or um, we have children or we take on a new job, right? These big milestones or it's January 1st, right? We all know the the you know, this very intoxicating idea that it's a new year and I'm going to stick to my resolutions. Um, we we tend to be very good at committing to new goals and new pursuits. And I think reminding yourself of the fresh start effect and trying to utilize that in your, in your life um, can help you respond better to setbacks and always see life as giving you these new beginnings that you can try to leverage when your old identity is is behind you in many ways. I feel like that also oh, no. plays into this idea of getting comfortable with operating outside your comfort zone, exiting that comfort box, if you will. And it might involve a new job or moving someplace new or just t- trying something a little bit different or a lot of bit different, like learning Mandarin. That challenge to your brain, it forces you to pay closer attention and also requires you to stay a little bit more in the present than we do otherwise if we're just going through our mundane existence day after day too. Yes, I think I think that's completely right. Um, I, I couldn't have said it better. So Maya, you uh, have gotten pretty good throughout your life at something that was referred to in Seinfeld as the pop-in. And that is just kind of showing up and seeing if there's an opportunity to be had. This happened with you and your mother going to Juilliard when you were still into the violin, and it certainly worked out really well. It also worked out well when you essentially cold called an Obama advisor when he was in the White House to see about if there was a gig to be had for you there. And that turns into an incredible career opportunity for you. You ultimately found and chair the White House behavioral science team. I'm curious where you get that initiative, where you get that drive to where you are not necessarily afraid to stick your neck out there if it means possibly finding a new opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I 100% get that from my mom. Um, She is absolutely fearless. And um, I think what she taught me from a very early age is that opportunities will just not always land on your lap. You know, they're not going to be handed to you on a silver plate for you to take. And so when the opportunity doesn't exist, make it right. Find a way to create the opportunity for yourself. So you were mentioning um, the, the Juilliard thing. So basically what happened is, you know, I was nine years old. We happened to be in New York. I had my violin with me. Um, my parents, you know, they have they had no visibility into the Western classical music world, right? They had grown up in India and they moved here. My dad's a physicist and my mom was, you know, my mom helps students get green cards uh, to study in the United States. Like uh, there was no, you know, strong musical background. And so when it came to my dream of auditioning for Juilliard, my mom just didn't have any in, right? She didn't have any connections into the world. And so we were we were walking by the the school, like the literal building. And my mom goes, why don't we just go in, Maya? 
was like, what do you mean just go in? She's like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Let's just go in and see what happens. So sure enough, we just walk into the building. My mom happens to meet um, a student and her mom in the elevator and goes, hey, uh, when you're done with your lesson, would you mind just introducing us to your violin teacher? Because my daughter is an you know, aspiring violinist and um, we would love it if she could play for the teacher. And they're very generous and kind. I mean, I found so many times over the course of my life how generous and kind people can be um, in, in the face of a, you know, a random request that comes from a stranger. Um, but but I auditioned basically for that teacher on the spot and he accepted me for his summer program. It was essentially like a boot camp for the Juilliard audition in the fall. And um, without that, there's just no way I would ever have been good enough to get in. And so I'm so grateful for my mom's spontaneity and also her willingness to just ask that question. Um, you know, it sounds cliche, but it's true, which is like, what is the worst thing that can happen? They just tell us no, right? Um, and so I've tried to use use that, that I, I kind of had that as a mantra in my head, which is when the door isn't open, see if you can open it for yourself. So when I was a postdoc, uh, I was studying cognitive neuroscience. I kind of realized it just wasn't for me. I was, I remember I was in this windowless basement um, for hours, scanning people's brains, uh, not even being able to have a conversation with them first. And I'm a very social person. And I just remember thinking, oh gosh, I really don't think this thing is for me. But oh no, I've just spent, you know, six years or whatnot in this field, right? Getting my PhD and then postdoc, like, what do I do next? And so I ended up hearing from my advisor, uh, my undergrad advisor, she told me, well, there's this amazing stuff that's happening in government right now where they are using insights from our field, right? Insights from behavioral science to help low-income kids get access to free meals at school every day. And I was so moved by that example because it was a wonderful illustration of how we could translate insights from behavioral science into literal life changes for, for young children that just need that that boost, right? And so, but again, didn't, like my mom back in the day with no music connections, I had no connections into the policy or political world. And so I sent a cold email uh, to a very senior White House advisor. Uh, his name is Cass Sunstein. And I remember in the email tray, I was, I was so, you could just see insecurity, like, you know, seeping from that email. It was like, hi, I'm Maya. I've published nothing of significance. I have no public policy experience. Um, I'm not cool enough to work with the likes of Obama. So if there's a state opportunity, that would be great. Um, and thankfully for me, Cass ignored all of the insecurity, uh, wrote back immediately and said, you know, here's the president's science advisor's contact info, go for it. And a week later, I was interviewing. And then, um, yeah, I joined the White House the, the following uh, the following spring. Okay, so this may not have been something of significance, but you did have some publications before joining the White House, and I wanted to ask you <laughs> about one of them that can be found at mayashunker.com. The title is An Ex Expectations-Based Approach to Explaining the Cross-Modal Influence of Color on Orthonasal Olfactory Identification, the Influence of the Degree of Discrepancy. What in the world did that entail? <laughs> Wow. Yeah, those are a lot of unnecessarily fancy words to explain something that just wasn't that, you know, complex. Uh, so basically, I um, when I was an undergrad, I studied visual perception. I was so fascinated by our ability to see. And I remember my brain was blown again when I learned that we only receive 
two-dimensional inputs, um, you know, on our retina, and we somehow construct a three-dimensional world around us. So our brains are filling in so many gaps based on our expectations of what the world is actually like. And that's how we navigate it without stumbling over things. And it's how we have, you know, depth perception and things like that. So again, was again, in total awe, admiration of the mind. Um, And what I learned, uh, especially coming out of my undergrad, is that it's not totally right to think about the senses in isolation. It's actually interesting because in the mind, these senses can interact with each other. So something that I taste can influence what I see. Something that I hear can influence what I smell. And so in my PhD, I studied multisensory perception. I basically looked at the fact that um, it is so important to study the senses together uh, and not in isolation because one input from one sensory organ can have really profound impact on the way that we perceive things through another sensory organ. So is this the same thing that is what causes realtors to bake chocolate chip cookies before they show a house for the day? (laughs) Is that in the same realm? I don't think it's in the same realm, but yeah, it seems to be an extremely effective tactic because uh, actually it's funny. My husband and I are are looking for a home right now, and I'm absolutely swayed by the culinary offerings uh, in all of these staged homes. So keep it up, realtors. It's not just the culinary offerings. It's the uh, the smells that that, that are wafting throughout the house as well. (laughs) It just creates these pleasant fake memories of what your life is going to look like if you're living (laughs) in that house too, right? Yeah, it's a very, there's nothing better than the cozy cookie smell, right? (laughs) Exactly. So uh, another uh, study that your name is on is should governments invest more in nudging? And this, of Mm. course, is one of the profound impacts that you made in your time with the Obama White House. Now, this paper came out in 2017, so technically after your time in the White House was over with. But Mm -hmm. just how proud are you of the efforts that you and your team were able to partake in to really get the government to think in more I guess, more abstract ways with regards to how it can positively influence public opinion versus trying to do so in a forceful manner? Yeah, I I mean, I would say I'm the most proud of all of the people that we got to collaborate with who were in the government. So civil servants who had been working in the government for decades, say, helping veterans uh, transition back to civilian life, helping members of the military save for retirement, helping low-income kids um, get access to educational opportunities, or helping, you know, student loan borrowers who are struggling to pay off their next, um, you know, next amount, uh, you know, have the ability to do that. And I think that what my goal was in government was to bring some of these innovative approaches from science, right? Insights about human behavior, how we make decisions, how we develop our attitudes and beliefs about the world, you name it, and make sure that we were designing public policies and programs to reflect that understanding of human behavior so that all of these programs and policies that these civil servants have been working so hard to implement um, were in in as good service as possible of the communities that they were aiming to help. And so 
I will say, you know, I'm, I'm in the government. I'm knocking on every door saying, you know, please use behavioral science insights. And I think I was probably pretty annoying a lot of the time. But I loved that so many of my my colleagues uh, were willing to take a chance in working with me and um, were willing to take the risk of using some of these experimental methods and these innovative methods. Um, sometimes there's not a lot of incentive to innovate in government because often you'll just get like a wrist slap if you do something wrong, right? Um, so I so admired um, their spirit and I learned so much about the populations we were serving by tapping into their, their decades-long expertise. So amongst the meaningful projects that you got to partake in while you were in the White House was something in Flint, Michigan. A lot of people by now know about the water crisis going on there, how Mm -hmm. people in that town for a long time have not had potable water. So what impact were you all able to have in Flint, Michigan? Yeah, so like you mentioned, I mean, there's a terrible lead-in water crisis in Flint that was poisoning... um, generations, you know, Um, and it was such a tragedy. And my team mates and I were brought in to make sure that we could distill uh, accurate information about good water safety practices to make sure that in the short term, you know, while all the, you know, pipes are being replaced and whatnot, um, we were able to keep residents safe. And one thing that was so powerful, Trey, is that I'd always thought of this as a water problem. And then I visited Flint a few times and I actually got to talk with folks on the ground. And what I realized is that the lead in water issue was a symptom of a much bigger problem, which was decades of disenfranchisement and systemic racism and people in the community of color just not feeling heard by their leadership uh, and their government officials. And so... It was through those conversations that I learned, oh, wow, these issues are so much deeper. And at the end of the day, um, residents don't have trust in their government, and they haven't had trust in their government uh, for quite some time now. And so the, the issues that we need to solve are not about water. They're about trust and, you know, humanity and respect and, and like really, really thorny, deep issues. Um, and I think that experience taught me the power of storytelling. You know, I'd always thought about things through a scientific lens and was trying to solve the problems that were given to me by looking back at the science and seeing what the science had to offer. And it was my experiences in Flint that helped me realize when you just talk to people, you know, when you talk to people who are on the ground, who are potentially suffering, and you can understand better what it is that they're going through, you can learn so much about how you can be more helpful. I felt this way when I was talking with principals in Florida um, about the school lunch program. I remember them sharing with me that one reason why parents don't sign their kids up for school lunches is obviously not because they don't care about their children. It's because there's a big stigma associated with um, signing your kid up for a public benefits program, right? And so as a government, when you learn that that's one of the barriers, you can change the way the program's designed to accommodate for that, right? You can automatically enroll the kids so that there is no need for parents to submit a proactive application. And it's just the default for eligible kids to be enrolled. And then I got to talk with people who had formerly been incarcerated about what their journey back to uh, civilian life was like and how it is that we could design reentry books um, so that they could engage in the necessary steps to get back on track and get employed again and, and um, you know, see a new future. And one of the insights that, I, you know, you glean from those conversations is it's 
really important to use labels that reflect their forward-looking identities, right? So it can be easy to call people who have previously been in prison, you know, ex-convicts, ex-prisoners, but actually you should call them community members, right? Job seekers. Um, Tap into the identity that they aspire to have to help them get back on track. So anyway, this is a longish answer to say, that my experience in the White House taught me about the power of storytelling. And in many ways, that's what I've channeled through a slight change of plans, which is there are some answers that don't lie in a scientific textbook, but they absolutely do lie in people's stories. I don't want to make any assumptions here, but was the behavioral science team discontinued by the Trump administration? Yeah, so I've I always felt that a behavioral science team was a very nonpartisan effort, right? It should operate whether there's a Republican in office or a Democrat in office or an independent in office, it's just good government to make sure that our policies and programs reflect our best understanding of human nature and human behavior. So I built the bulk of a team of the team in a very nonpartisan part of government called the, the General Services Administration. And that team actually persisted through Trump. They did incredible work um, helping, you know, people with wildfire wildfire relief and um, helping on topics like the opioid epidemic, um, helping students uh, with their loans and, uh, you know, crises overseas. Like, it was incredible, the efforts that they did. I, I, The White House component did not exist under Trump. I mean, he didn't even have a, a science advisor. So um, there was no science and technology office, um, really. Um, but it has been it has been a stable presence in government, and I've been extremely proud of the work the team did uh, over those four years. That's fantastic. Congratulations for that. Thank and, you. and I guess on that note, you talked about the need to have conversations, which is so important in this mm-hmm. day and age where so many of us just hide behind these social media monikers and can really say ugly things to one another and not necessarily have to own those comments in your real life. But at the same mm-hmm. time, We see where this country is politically and just how fractured it seems to be politically. It seems like the obvious answer is to try and have more of these conversations. What is the necessary change that needs to occur for this broken political system that we are all a part of in in America to make a change for the better? So I think one of the people that I feature on this podcast says it best. His name is Daryl Davis. He's a black blues musician. And uh, his Life takes a sudden turn one night at a bar when he's approached by a member of the Ku Klux Klan and they strike up a conversation and ultimately a friendship. And he ends up inspiring hundreds of people to leave white supremacy groups. And what he said is that we tend to spend so much time talking at the other person, we forget to talk with the other person. And I think that's such a poignant reminder that we are capable of changing our minds about so many different things, but it's a very, very hard thing for us to do, right? It's not comfortable to change our minds about deeply entrenched beliefs that we have. Um, We experience a lot of dissonance, and it's just easier to go through life believing the things we've always believed and doubling down on those beliefs by surrounding ourselves with people who also believe those things. But we know from the science it's possible to change your minds if you use the right approaches with people. And what Daryl's story taught me, and these are insights that are certainly corroborated by the science, is that when you treat an engagement with someone else that you disagree with as a conversation rather than as a lecture, you are going to make so much more progress. And some of the techniques you can use in that conversation are to increase your question to statement ratio. So rather than just saying a lot of things at the person, 
you ask them why it is that they believe the things they do, right? How did you come to believe this thing that I find problematic, for example? Um, what kind of evidence would change your mind? And so Daryl approached these um, these engagements, like I said, as conversations where he showed genuine curiosity um, for the other person and their story. And he would, you know, an another technique that we know from science that can work really well is that when you're listening to someone, you can say back to them what they've just said to you in your own words to make it very clear that they were heard, right? Um, and that you were listening and you were very thoughtful in listening and that you might not agree with them, but at least they were heard. And so um, it, it's, it's, one of the most powerful stories I've heard in my life, Daryl's story. I mean, I would encourage all your listeners to hear that episode. Um, it's called When a Musician Takes on the Clan, Takes on the KKK. It's an incredibly inspiring story because it shows that even people with the ugliest, most reprehensible views can, in fact, change their minds. Wonderfully put there, and I think that's a great way to end this conversation. She is Dr. Maya Shunker. She is a cognitive scientist and former Obama White House advisor. She's also the creator, host, and executive producer, yes, wearing all of those hats, for an excellent new podcast called A Slight Change of Plans. You can hear it now wherever podcasts are listened to. Maya, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for the incredible effort going into this podcast. I think it really will inspire a positive change in those who choose to listen. Thank you so much, Trey, for having me. It was an incredibly fun conversation, and you ask great questions, and they're going to get me thinking for quite some time, so thank you. Join us next time when my guest is Daniel Levin on his book, Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for providing the intro and outro music. You can check out more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out with us today. You can listen, learn, and subscribe at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. <laughs>